This episode is brought to you by State Farm. What do your music playlists and podcast feeds have in common? They're a reflection of you. And that's how the State Farm personal price plan works, too. It gives you options to personalize your coverage so you can protect what you care about most at an affordable price that's just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Go to statefarm.com today to create your State Farm personal price plan. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Listen carefully. Do you hear that? That is the unmistakable sound of quiet and the inspiration for the quiet-tuned interior of the 2024 Buick Encore GX. Buick Quiet Tuning includes active noise cancellation, triple door seals, and laminated acoustic glass, all designed to help keep those really annoying outside noises outside. You really need to hear the 2024 Buick Encore GX for yourself and see it too. Believe me, it's gorgeous. Bavuma's maiden test century for South Africa on Tuesday transcended cricket. The 25-year-old scored 102 not out to become the first black South African to score a test cricket 100. That in turn saw the Proteas reach 627 for seven, two runs shy of England's total. Bavuma was born and raised in the Langa Township in Cape Town. The kids who were there for the KFC um, during lunchtime, you know, and half of those kids come from Langa. And you know, half of those kids know my name, so you know, whenever I go back to Langa now, I know I'm going to have those kids running, running around me. So, I mean, there's a greater significance about it. That was Temba Bavuma on what his 100 meant for young black South Africans. When England toured South Africa in 1956-57, a man walked seven miles to get to Newlands to watch his country play. He walked through a city that was set up to keep him down. He walked because people like him had to walk. And when he arrived at the ground, he stood in a segregated part of the stadium, or as they called it, the cage. That area was for people not considered white, and he watched a team of people who didn't look like him represent the nation he was born in. We don't know when this man was born, but we do know that in 56-57 he would have been near his prime. We've heard rumours, stories and fables, but we were not allowed to see him as he wasn't allowed to play. But this man was standing where he was due to Swart Giver. The Black Threat. His part of the ground is what we would call in English apartheid. Over there, they called it apartheid. They called him Dolly. He was Basil Dolivera. South Africa was a place where people from around the world rushed to find gold and diamonds. And in that stand, under the sign for coloreds, watching a team that didn't represent his country was one of the many precious commodities that South Africa ignored. Dolivera was an all-rounder. And at the same time he was smashing around attacks in Cape Town, Trevor Goddard was doing the same in Durban. They were both in the same country, but different worlds. 
and South Africa would grow more all-rounders. Mike Proctor would be another one. Recently, I spoke to Proctor, who is very much a man who is at least trying to, for want of a better term, put his heart in the right area. And we talked about Basil D'Oliveira. How much did you know about him as a cricketer in South Africa at the time? You talk in the documentary that you'd heard the name, but cricketers talk, as we know, and he obviously was making a lot of hundreds, even if it was at a lower level. There must have been a bit of conversations before he moved to the UK about how good he was as a cricketer. Well, not really, funnily enough. You know, his name was sort of mentioned. But again, you know, we played our first-class cricket and Colors played their cricket in Cape Town. His name appeared very briefly. We didn't know how good or how bad he was or, you know, how really good he was. He was obviously a good player. But again, we didn't hear too much. You know, we were in South Africa at the time and, you know, that kind of news wasn't really great news for South Africa concerned because it was, you know, um, they're a colored guy from Cape Town and it wasn't sort of, when I say our level of cricket, how do we know? Because we never played against them. I always think about this. Basil D'Oliveira could have stayed in Cape Town, been the best cricketer in the world, and we'd just never have known he existed. Welcome to Double Century, a podcast on the history of cricket. I'm Jared Kimber. This is season two. For this, we're doing something slightly different. Instead of looking at unconnected moments in cricket history, season two is going to focus on one story over five episodes. This is the story of race in cricket. And so for that, it's also the story of Basil D'Oliveira. Today, Bow Carp in Cape Town is a tourist destination. Pretty people rush there to take selfies within a community of colourful houses and Table Mountain in the backdrop. It's an insta-place. In 1857, it was where the Cape Coloureds lived. And to many outside South Africa, the term coloured is probably very harsh on the ear. But it's an ethnic group where locals still proudly use the term within the Western Cape. It was 1857 when Armenian Hendricks was born in Bokarp. Armenian was his given name, but he was known as Krom. No one knows how good Krom Hendricks was. Krom was not his given name. And across the internet, you can see him referred to as William Henry Krom Hendricks and Armin Hendricks. William Henry comes from the book Too Black to Wear Whites, written by John T. Winch and Richard Perry. But Crick Info and Cricket Archive still have him listed as Armin. And it's on Cricket Archive, a website so thorough chronicling cricket matches that it has four of my rubbish matches in its archive. It only has one from Crom. Malays versus W.W. Reed's 11 at Newlands on the 22nd and 23rd of March, 1892. They list him as Amin Hendricks there, but there were three Hendricks in that game. He played one match and it was only a two-day affair. It wasn't a first-class game. To make it seem even more pointless, the Malays fielded 18 players. But W.W. Reed's 11 wasn't just a random team. It was the second English test team to tour South Africa. This was their last game before they headed back to England. They had been playing the best South Africans for an entire summer. The English team were tired, overworked, but they had decent cricketers with them. WWE Reed would play 18 tests and make 22,349 first-class runs. Billy Murdoch played 19 tests, 18 for Australia and 1 for England. And JJ Ferris, who played 9 tests, 8 for Australia and 1 for England. These guys knew their cricket. They had played in three continents. They were grizzled veterans. And they saw Hendricks take four for 50 against their team. And think about that for a minute. His team was thought to be so poor that he needed an extra seven men just to compete. And he was one of those guys taking almost half of England's wickets. 
George Hearn, who was one of the English players, later wrote, He was very fast indeed. The wicket was very bad and we didn't like facing the man at all. I was captain and during the match, everyone began to ask me to let someone else to go in in his place. The balls flew over our heads in all directions. Many said that Hendricks was the quickest bowler in South Africa. The English certainly weren't keen to face him again. W.W. Reid said that Hendricks would be central to any South African side who might be selected to tour England. Many South African newspapers supported Hendricks going to England. Western Province and Transvaal cricket boards also suggested that he should play. But ultimately, the politics of the day meant that it was virtually impossible for a non-white man to play for South Africa. The team manager, trying to do the right thing, kind of, suggested that Hendricks could come as the baggage man and then play in the matches when he was in England. Hendricks replied with this, I would not think of going in that capacity. There was also a point where Crom tried to distance himself from the coloured and Malay community. He was the only Christian in that team to play England, and his ancestry was different from any of the others who were identified as Cape Coloured. Years later, he would even claim that he was white on his father's side, just so he could play for a white cricket club. If what Crom said was true about his father, then he was half white, but that's not the way that racists look at things. And to prove that, you need to know about Charlie Llewellyn, who played 15 tests for South Africa and was also once picked in an England squad, but didn't quite make the final 11. Llewellyn was a slow, left-arm orthodox all-rounder. He'd finished his first-class career with 1,000 wickets and 1,800s. At test level, he averaged 20 with the bat and 29 with the ball. For South Africa at that time, he was a very good player. His father was Welsh and his mother was from St. Helena, a small island halfway between Africa and South America. Essentially, his mother was black and his father was white. But as often happens, pigmentation plays funny tricks, and England great Wilfred Rhodes described Llewellyn as like a rather sunburned English player. And so because of that, he would have a career and now be seen as South Africa's first non-white player. He wasn't treated well, and considering how good a player he was, many believed he should have played far more. But he did get a chance to play. And Llewellyn playing and Hendricks missing is all down to things completely beyond their control. How much melanin was in their skin? One plays 15 tests with poor treatment. The other never gets on the field. But that racist thinking, it is always odd. 60 years later, a group of South Africans are in the UK on a schoolboy trip playing cricket. Somehow they managed to bump into Muhammad Ali, who was then champion of the world. Being sports fans, they rushed over to see him, and one asked for his autograph. When Ali asked him where he was from, the boy said South Africa. Ali gave him back his pen and paper in disgust and walked off. The boy couldn't understand. Didn't Ali know that the blacks in America and the blacks in South Africa were different? You can read about this in Barry Richards' first book, because he was that boy. There was a training that South African white people took to not see the world as it actually was. I once said to Mike Proctor that it was brainwashing, and he seemed confused by the term, and then after a moment he said, yeah, I suppose that's what it was. But when I asked him what he thought all those black people did when they weren't performing jobs for him and his family or at his school, he had never really thought about it, and I wondered if brainwashed was the right term. There was a block there. But because players like Richards and Proctor started to travel, that block was a little bit removed. They realised that South Africa wasn't like other places. And the way that the world looked at South Africa meant that there's a big chance that they may lose their test careers. I suppose you could say that they had worked out that they lived in an abnormal society. 
It belongs mainly to Barry Richards, who, in a flurry of brilliant aggression, speeds on to his second century at Test cricket, stamping him as one of the most exciting batsmen in the world. On April 3, 1971, there was a match between Curry Cup champions Transvaal and the rest of South Africa at Newlands. Barry Richards, Clive Rice, Graham Pollock, Dennis Lindsay and Mike Proctor all played. The previous day, the South African Cricket Association had tried to get two non-white cricketers in their squad for an upcoming tour of Australia. The government had said no. In that game, Mike Proctor bowled the first ball. Barry Richards faced it. He knocked it around the corner for a single and both teams walked off the ground. This was the player's letter. We fully support the South African Cricket Association's application to invite non-whites to Tour Australia, if they are good enough, and further subscribe to merit being the only criterion on the cricket field. The Minister for Sport, Frank Waring, said it was merely a gesture for local and particularly overseas consumption. I think it shows the intellect of the man that he thought that it was for locals and overseas consumption at the same time, which would be for everyone. But there are a few things to note here. The fact that white men of this era stage this walk-off is remarkable. Even if they also had something to gain from this, in hopefully playing for their nation again, it was still some action that would have riled up much of the rulers of the country and many cricket fans. But perhaps the bigger move was from the cricket board themselves trying to convince the government. This may not sound like much, but if you go back to Crom Hendrick's time, it's hard to see where the government ends and the board starts. It's worth noting how political cricket was in South Africa at that point. William Milton played in South Africa's first test of 1889. A year later, he became head of the Prime Minister's department for then-Prime Minister Cecil Rhodes. Milton was originally from England, but it was really he who pushed South Africa to tour England. Cecil Rhodes said on Hendricks, they would have expected him to throw boomerangs during the luncheon interval, which of course did happen with the Australian indigenous cricketers, but they also got to play Over the years, Hendrick's name would infrequently appear in controversies over whether he should be allowed to play in local matches. By 1897, he was banned from playing local cricket as he was being paid as a professional coach. Hendrick's was still trying to play professionally when he was 47, but eventually he went back to normal life. He fathered 11 children who gave him 40 grandchildren, and he kind of disappears out of cricket. The book that much of this information comes from, Too Black to Wear Whites, written by John T. Winch and Richie Parry, is a very modern book. For the longest time, Cron Hendricks' story has really just been whispers. And even after this book, all we really have is when and where he was born, one match, a few articles, and some pleading letters he wrote. We have no idea how good he really was. Perhaps that wicket was just so bad that he seemed fast. Or maybe it was a lucky day. It could be that the England team were just very tired. But we don't know that because Cron Hendricks wasn't born with white skin. And Crom only stands out because he is the first player to have this happen to him. He wasn't even the most talented non-white player of his era. I mean, Lou Allen seems like an incredible cricketer. But if there was Lou Allen and there was Crom, it's quite clear that there were other cricketers out there in South Africa at that time who could have played. And it's pretty clear that like most colonial places, cricket had a hold in South Africa and the locals were playing. But the real problem was that South Africa was so brutal in their segregation that after Crom, we don't know much about other players like him. We can guess that many were talented, because why on earth wouldn't they be? And South Africa cricket has lately shown that many non-white cricketers, Cape-coloured, Asian, black, can be the best in the world. 
But the problems of South African cricket and race have never gone away because the problems of race in the world have never gone away. Here is Lungi Ngidi speaking to the South African press about Black Lives Matter. Once we get back to playing, that is definitely something we have to address as a team. You know, as a nation as well, we have a a past that uh, is also very difficult in terms of racial discrimination and things like that. So it's definitely something that we will be addressing, I believe, as a team. And if we're not, obviously, it's something that I would bring up. It's something that we need to take very seriously. And like the rest of the world is doing, make the stand. If that didn't sound like a call to arms to you, to certain white South African former cricketers, it certainly did. Players like Pat Simcox and Botar Dipinar were very upset. But the whole thing has led to a larger discussion with South African black players of the past speaking up about mistreatments. And there's even been a discussion around remuneration. Now, hopefully this shows how far we have come. But think about it this way. Lungi Ngidi is known. He has stats. Teams pick him at home and abroad. Lungi Ngidi might still have to fight, and the battle has not been won, but he plays for South Africa, and the only bags he carries are his own. Thank you for listening to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, any way that you could share it really helps us. We are an independent production. And if you want to help support us more, we have a Patreon in the show notes. And a huge thank you to those who already donate to us. Double Century is a team effort. Nick McCorriston is our producer and editor. Abhishek Mukherjee and Bertie Moores are our fact checkers. And the series is written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. Thank you for listening. Podcast Network.